Hello, I'm Justin Perkins, and you're listening to Talk Junkie. Uh, today's show is going to be a little different. Um, we're going to look at dual topics instead of just one topic eccentric for the whole show. Uh, more so than anything, these two topics are, can be condensed down kind of short. One didn't really involve much uh, research, and, and, you know, both, like all my podcasts, are opinion-based. These are not factual statements. Some factual statements are there. I would recommend that when anyone makes a statement and proclaims it to be factual, that you fact-check it. I mean, <clears throat> you can't live your life depending on outside information that's never vetted, never checked, never looked at. Uh, it's not a really sensible way to go about things. Before we get into any of these topics today, we're going to get a little stuff out of the way. I did go through in what time I was off <clears throat> before I started recording again and just dumped all emails, deleted all emails, got rid of everything. Uh, there were a lot of good stuff in there. I did read a good chunk of them, but to respond to them or to do a mailbag for them, look, I can tell you right now, I lost some people in that time off. I can tell by the numbers, I can tell by the downloads, and that's on me. You know, I mean, I, I slacked off, took some time off, and it is what it is. But it doesn't mean it can't be built back up. Um, that is hard for me because I do this podcast without social media. Um, I mean, I get on occasionally on my personal site and post, hey, there's an episode up and stuff. More for people I know than people who have found this organically by, you know, searching for podcasts or however, whatever means it came to them. And the big challenge I made was, could I build this podcast that way? To where there's not a page for it. There's not a place for what I think is kind of a detrimental impact on on the podcast itself. I think open conversation is good. Um, but I don't know that social media is the way to do open conversation. And that's one of the topics we're going to talk about today uh, is how we solve problems and how we look at things. Um, but the email, if you want to drop an email, is uh, talkjunkie at gmail.com. Uh, there was a couple people who went online, got my Facebook profile, not that there's an issue, but they don't have any issue with that, sent me personal messages, and I was kind of answering some of those messages uh, on the show. I'm not going to do that any, anymore. From now on, it's going to be an email. That To me, at least the way I approach an email, and, and what we were doing in the past, and a couple of us continued to do this somewhat over the break, I'm not going to lie, is topics could be sent, and it seems like when someone sits down and types out an email, they take the time to think about what they want to say, they revise it, sometimes they change it, and it's not as spontaneous and uh, such a robotic action as sending a message on Messenger, and so therefore I think you get a little more of a um, concise uh, nature to, to the email and to the message, and then I'm able to look at it, you know, kind of construct what I want to say back and send it back, and I get a lot of emails that don't make it to air, but we have a great conversation, and that conversation to me means a lot, so I kind of like that method, and I like the way I've been doing it, and I'm going to stick with that, um, but I am going to do a mailbag show. I have received a couple emails since it's uh, 
since the show started back, and and I'm going to go ahead and do a, a mailbag show. It'll probably be a little while. I want to get enough to select through. Again, if you don't want your name read in the email, don't put your name in the body of the email. If I read the body of the email, I don't care what the email address says, if I read the body of the email and it doesn't say how my name is, then I'm not going to read it. And if you put how my name is, whether it be a nickname or a screen name or whatever it is, I'm going to say that name, even if it's a real name. So if you don't want it said, don't put it in the body, or at least put somewhere in there, P.S., don't read my name. Uh, because some people enjoy anonymity, and some people, the, the ability to comment anonymously is very um, appealing to some people. And I'm not going to say that that's a bad thing. I'm not going to say that it's a good thing. It depends, I think, in a lot of situations. I flip-flopped on, on my belief on that over the years, and um, uh, I've kind of changed my mind on it numerous times. Um but get those emails in again. Talkjunkie at gmail dot com. Uh, and for one, of the, the reason I'm really kind of making this statement is one of the emails I read was, "Hey, how do I find you on social media? Do you have a Patreon? I don't have a Patreon. I can't imagine doing a Patreon. I have nowhere near a large enough audio, uh, audience for a Patreon. I don't create enough material for a Patreon, and I don't really think that I'm suited for a Patreon. I, I, it, you know, um, I wouldn't pay." For it. And that's, you know, I've always heard, well, don't knock your product if you want your product to. This is not a product. This is a conversation. This is a thought exercise. And it's meant for that. And it's meant to uh, engage and get discussion going backwards and forth. So if, in, in lieu of a, a Patreon, if you want a, some sort of payment for me, connect with the show. Send me something. You know, give feedback and kind of make it, you know, an interactive thing. And to me, that that's a better reward than a Patreon and me having to do extra content and secret content that you can't get here but you can't get there and I just I don't like that. And I don't knock podcasts that do it. I mean, you know, some of the podcasts I love do that. I don't pay for the Patreons but, you know, they, they do like it. And, and um I some of those people that's what they do for a living. You know, and one, you know, who knows? Uh, in, any of you doing your own podcast could end up doing it for a living. And that Patreon could be a, a lifeline to keep you afloat and be able to do that and, and still be able to present the free stuff that you're able to present. I looked at someone like Dan Carlin's podcast, and a lot of those are behind a paywall. The amount of research and detail and work that goes into those, I cannot imagine uh, doing that for free. I don't know if I could do that for a living. Uh, there's a lot of work to that. And, and I listen to um, Dan Cummins' uh, Time Suck podcast. Uh, again, seems to me a huge chunk of his material is free. He does have a paywall, but a lot of research and work and time goes into those episodes, so I understand that. I, I, there's no uh, ill will there. I, you know, I, I support it completely, and I support anyone else's choice to do so. Uh, it's just not something so. Um, for the person that asked about it, I didn't grab the name again. I, the the email side of this has been up in the air a little bit for a while. Um, and also address something else. Uh, the tone of my show is fairly serious for the most part. Uh, and I think a lot of people that know me, that kind of throws them for a loop when they interact with me on a daily basis because I'm not a super serious person. Um, but again, it, it's a thought exercise. Now, there are those like you can't say that on a podcast uh, maybe it was the title. I don't remember the title of my own shows. I know that's bad, but I don't. 
uh, the Evening News edition, Letters to Cleo. There's episodes like that that do have a very funny tone to them. Uh, maybe a dark humor tone, but that is the humor that I have. Uh, but for the most part, you're not going to get that. Now, I can recommend podcasts that have a uh, a lot of information. They're very enjoyable. And they also have a very fun, relaxed um, uh, type of environment. And, and I'm going to run an ad for one of those types of shows here today on the show. Uh, it's actually coming up next. So uh, sit down. We're going to sit in on two different topics today. See what we can work through, and uh, hopefully have a great show. Greetings. We come in peace. Hello, everyone. I'm Goose. And I'm Cronkite. We want to invite everyone to tune in to Here to Chew Bubblegum. That's right. Here to Chew Bubblegum. We talk about UFOs, extraterrestrials, paranormal. Time travel, other dimension. You name it, we talk about it. Conspiracies, extra dimensions. The government, government secrets, black projects, Everything. What, what what don't we talk about? We talk about everything on Here to Chew Bubblegum. You can also check out our website, here to chew bubblegum.com. Okay, let's jump into this first topic. And uh, it's, again, on the more serious side. Um, I've traveled a lot here lately. Uh, Wisconsin, Indiana, uh, West Virginia, Ohio, um, Arkansas, Mississippi, Louisiana, uh, drove through Illinois, um, drove through uh, parts of Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee. So, kind of like the song says, I've, I've been everywhere. Um, the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language, the fifth edition, defines poverty as state of being poor, lack of means of providing material needs or comforts, deficiency in amount, scantiness, unproductiveness, uh, and infertility. Um, I think we all have a personal definition on, on what, uh, what poverty is. Um, I tried to look up and kind of find um, an alternate, and I did, I found various definitions and things of that nature, but um, poverty is to do without. And, and in a financial, looking at it from a financial point of view, it's a lack of, uh, of financial stability, a lack of income, a lessened income, and an inability to provide basic needs and necessities. You know, Coming from Eastern Kentucky, um, I seen pretty poor places growing up. Um, we were not rich by any means. Uh, my wife was not rich by any means. You know, um, looking back, I was very fortunate uh, with what my mother and father provided and what my grandfather was able to do with his life. I was very fortunate. And, and looking at my life, I'm very fortunate with what I've been able to do. Um, I have some college, some technical school, but uh, didn't graduate. No, you know, uh, outside of vocational school, uh, no, no degrees, anything to speak of. Um, I have a job that uh, is more reliant on 
experience in the field, and I was fortunate enough to get that experience in that field, and, and a lot of common sense and the ability to learn and absorb uh, new materials as they come through. Um, and I'm a fairly flexible person uh, when it comes to uh, a willingness to, to learn new things and, and do things. Uh, I don't focus and maybe push myself as much as I should. Um, there's people in my field, obviously, far more successful than myself. And there's people who work when I don't have work. Um, but I would not consider myself impoverished. Uh, by any means, we're we're fed. We're uh, we we have housing. Um, we have the luxury of automobiles and things of that nature. A lot of times in America, we look at lower income and confuse it with poverty because we live in this first world bubble, where poverty is not fully realized to a lot of people who may consider themselves impoverished, but they're actually uh, doing pretty well on a global scale. Um, and, and it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing that, that money has value, that that our economic system works the way it works. It's something that is, um, in many regards, truly uh, unique to the human species. And um, it, it's something that uh, we, we we take for granted our ability to, to think and function on that level, but we also take for granted what we do have, and, and we're not as fully understanding and compassionate about what others don't. Um, I can't, th this is not really going to be a podcast that is of a global aspect of poverty, and I can speak factually and statistically and maybe informed on global poverty, but I can't speak from experience or from um, interaction on that level. You know, it's it's kind of you got to if you can't at least walk a mile in someone's shoes, you need to be beside them for a couple miles while they walk and. I don't have that ability on a global scale. I'm not talking third world poverty and things of that nature. Not completely. But to look at the United States and how the United States works on a level of poverty, um, that's a different situation altogether. <coughs> Excuse me. Again, no cough button. Sorry. I am going to find a way to remedy that. Um the issue in my own experience being from eastern kentucky and seeing poverty at a and again first world poverty seeing it uh from my perspective and where i was at and my location in that i would say wholeheartedly there were times that um in many, many people's estimations, my family was definitely in poverty. But again, it, it, it's a matter of where you're looking from, you know. Um, I liken it to, let's say, um, you know, your 
you're on a, a hilltop and, and you're looking down and, and all you see is this barren wiped out uh, environment below you but upon getting in it actually once you're close enough to see the colors and, and the contours and it, it's a beautiful area with flowers and things like that and it's just perspective it's, it's where you're looking from it's the distance you are from it and the situation and mindset you're in yourself but living in eastern kentucky and seeing <clears throat> dilapidated homes and, and, and the home i grew up in up until third grade was my great grandmother's and grandfather's home place deal you know where my grandfather and his brothers and sisters were born um is a very old house um and it was not a nice house by any standard um then we moved into a single wide trailer it was a new trailer you know and still even in eastern kentucky to a certain degree but there's, there was this stigma where you lived in a single wide trailer you know and then i moved out moved away and moved back and lived in apartments and uh, my mother and, and stepfather at the time uh, got a double wide trailer and then you know there's this hierarchy to people who look at things in that regards and on their hierarchy that double wide is a little higher than that single wide but it's not a physical home uh, my wife and I first got married we lived in a single wide trailer uh, it was very nice uh, in regards to how it was done because my uncle had put a ton of work into it and, and doing things. It was a trailer so old, it was from the 60s, I believe, didn't have serial numbers or numbers or anything on it. <clears throat> but physically, it was in fine shape. But, you know, here you are, you're in that stigma, you live in a single wide trailer. We bought a much newer trailer after that single wide, um, with, uh, uh, but not new. And, you know, so there's, in, in certain people's eyes, here's this evolution. They went from this old trailer to this new trailer, and then we went to a double wide, and then we went to a physical home. And there's stigmas, and, and there's judgments based on what type of dwelling people have in a small area like that. I don't believe local people do it as much as people from outside. And, you know, that's where the terms like trailer park trash and things like this come from. You know, uh, people say it in a way that it is derogatory towards people who live in a trailer park but they're saying it from a representation that says crime poverty and bad things come from a trailer park well maybe uh, other people will look at it from a situation of uh, environment has created poverty and poverty has beget you know whatever and some people look at it as the free will of you could do better if you wanted and you know those, those are different topics for a different day the question is the definition of poverty, and I think that that definition of poverty will change wherever you go. Now, I very much looked at Eastern Kentucky, especially growing up, <coughs> excuse me, as a very impoverished place and a place that um, definitely was at a lower rung societally and financially than the rest of the country. Even in Kentucky, you you were made to feel as and there were projections made that certain parts of Kentucky were better than other parts due to maybe average income, average housing situation. And so Lexington would look down, at least the perception was given to people from eastern Kentucky, that Lex people from Lexington would look down on people from eastern Kentucky because of the impoverished environments they come from. And uh, I have seen that very much so. And the same thing for Louisville and, and 
things of that respect. I was made to feel that way by people I encountered much more in the Lexington area, and that's why I kind of mentioned Lexington first. Uh, but even on a smaller scale, from Pikeville to Knott County, to you know, Pikeville by no means a large city. Um, at one time, the richest county uh, in the state of Kentucky, I believe, uh, especially based on you know minerals and coal and things of that nature coming out of the county, but um, some very impoverished areas in uh, Pike County I'd seen firsthand. So as a kid traveling to Lexington, Louisville, uh, you know, you would see these areas that were more affluent and, and better taken care of, and you could tell the difference in income uh, between where you were from and where you were at at that time. Uh, and, and, you know, if you were fortunate enough to vacation as a kid, and, and I was fairly fortunate, um, we went on a couple, you know, here and there. Um, you, you you go on these vacations, and a lot of times you go on vacation like tourist traps, things like Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg and things of that nature. And you go to these places, and you see the amount of people and the amount of things to do. And you see all these various things, plus the, the way people are spending money and the cost that it costs to go to these places. And so where I was from in Kentucky even seemed more poor and more deprived and, and like it had less going for it because when I went to these places, I seen the good sides of these places. I seen the good side of Lexington, the good side of Louisville, the good side of Tennessee, the good side of Ohio, you know. Um, and so you, you construct in your mind um, this explanation of what is um, poverty and, and what is... Um, basically as a kid what is rich you know and the things that are no scale to me as an adult of being considered rich as a kid i would have very much considered rich i would definitely consider the lifestyle as a kid that my wife and my family have had now there's been times when i would have considered that as somebody's very well off and I look at it now as an adult and it's somebody that's made sacrifices and you've done things and, and you've maybe lived life more than worried about other things and you know there's definitely very very lean times last year was the hardest year I believe my wife and I've had since we've been married financially uh, due to the coronavirus and, and the lack of work in the industry I was in and this year didn't look like it was going to be much better and I've been very fortunate up to this point that it has been um, in regards to last year astronomically better in regards to other years nowhere near as good um, but it's a lot of perception and personal uh, um, your your personal perception of it but also your personal experience of it so my job has afforded me the ability to travel quite a bit over the years and oftentimes to Virginia, West Virginia, uh, PA, uh, some to Ohio, and a lot of times very rural areas because my work is generally done in very rural areas. And I guess in your mind, you develop what Appalachia is and, and what the mountains are and what your type of people are. And there wasn't a lot of difference going from some small rural area in West Virginia to some small rural area in Kentucky. The perception of people in West Virginia of people in Kentucky and vice versa. That may be different. Um, but not 
not really different in, in what I was seeing and what I was experiencing. Everything kind of looked the same. And, you know, as I got older, I, I really started to look at um, what, I don't know how to say it, I guess what I had perceived as, you know, Tennessee to me as a kid was Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg, and that's what Tennessee was. But as an adult, I experienced parts of Tennessee that were much more like Eastern Kentucky. And I realized that there was a lot more in common there. But again, there's this little thing in your head, well, you know, you go west to Memphis and stuff, that'll probably change. When you stay in, in, in you know, a certain area of Tennessee, you're still kind of in the mountains. You're still in Appalachia, and you're, you're still... Um, you're still in this area that's always going to be impoverished and different from the rest of the world. And going to, to Pennsylvania, I saw that as well. There's mountain areas and there's city areas, and that's always going to, that's always going to be the situation, and um, there's always going to be this divide between those two. There's poverty and there's no poverty. And it was, as an adult, starting to stay in these cities and work in these cities, and even someone in my later teens going to Louisville, <clears throat> and the people, I, I met a lot of people in Louisville who even the thought of going to the mountains and going to eastern Kentucky scared them. And it was this different environment and this different landscape and this situation of true poverty and just everybody's down on their luck and everybody's got it hard and there is no sunshine through the storm. It is bleak and it is hopeless. Then I got to see inner city areas and I got to see the rural outskirts of some of these places. And I realized that the poverty in these rural areas like I came from in these in these inner city areas with these housing developments and, and uh, housing projects and, and these areas, the situation is very similar. The life experience and the culture and these things may be very different, but at the root of it, the poverty is very similar. And I only first got to experience these things in Kentucky, in Lexington, in Louisville, mainly in Louisville. And it made me think, is, is that something completely and totally um, unique to Kentucky? Is there just no way to escape this poverty through this one belted area, through this Appalachian range, even from Pennsylvania once I got up into Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, all the way down? Is there no way to to really escape that it's an Appalachian thing? You know, uh, then I was able to go to New York City, and it's beautiful, and it's expensive, and it's, it's so amazing. It really is an experience that I was afraid to have almost, I think, in, in a certain way. I was afraid of that city because I had developed not only this um, decision that eastern Kentucky was inherently poor, but also... Cities were inherently dangerous and dirty and vile. And, 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 you know, I experienced Philadelphia prior to that, and there were sections of Philadelphia that um, met my expectations of negative, and there were 
definitely the historical district of Philadelphia exceeded my expectations for greatness. And the same thing happened in New York City. So then it comes to this question between work and travel with my family and these things, is this an East Coast thing? I'd been to Florida and it's the same thing, you know, and, you know, obviously it it, it can't be. It's, it's, it's you know, uh, it's a national thing. And that, that, that seems like such a childish thought. And even saying that, I look at myself and go, well, how, how could I ever believe something like that? But really sit down and question yourself and go, not do I subscribe to that voluntarily and not do I sit and ponder on it and consider it and try to debate it. You know, you know, as a basic manner of common sense that there's examples of both in both places, but a lot of times that's not your immediate consideration. Cities are dangerous and rural areas are poor. And you don't associate your poverty with other areas, especially as a child. But even as adults sometimes, if you don't experience other places, you don't really associate the level of poverty that you see in your area with the level of poverty that are in other places. It's easy on a global scale to look at a third world country and go, okay, this is real poverty and we have first world poverty. I can see that. Now, don't think that I'm taking away from the seriousness of American poverty and, and I'm looking at poverty not in regards as a whole and, and not looking at individually from homelessness to, to various things that are at the same level as third world poverty in, in certain ways, looking at it as a whole and, and how we kind of view it as a whole. I know people with brand new cell phones, brand new four-wheelers, uh, a house over their, a roof over their head, food on their table, uh, a government-assisted income coming in, um, who would look at themselves and say, I'm poor. I would say there is an inequality to your amount of income in regards to someone else's. Now, what makes that inequality is a completely different discussion for a completely different day. I will say that. But I will say that you're not going hungry. You may not be living with the luxuries that you want or possibly even deserve or desire, but your level of poverty is different from that of someone who has nothing, no clean water, no food, uh, to where hunger is such an issue that it could quite easily uh, result in your death. There are different levels to poverty. <clears throat> but it's hard without seeing and experiencing poverty to get a, a full encompassing view of what poverty is as a whole, as a um, as an actual nationwide thing. Um, this year, I had a pretty good little run down south. And, you know, I worked Ohio, Indiana, West Virginia. I'd seen those places before, and they were very reminiscent of home and the way they were set up, and even the poverty looked the same. Abandoned homes, run-down places, things of that nature. Uh, the infrastructure not quite as well-maintained. Um, predominantly wide areas and areas that were very familiar to me in look and in, in appearance. 
And so I identified with those much as I identified with the things at the house. But on the few days that I had off on the road, I always like to travel around and kind of look and see what I can find, historical landmarks, things of that nature. And then I also like to get off the beaten path some and, and see what I can find. And then the hollers and stuff of uh, of the mountains, that's a little harder to do. And sometimes, you know, I think the perception is a little more dangerous to do. <clears throat> but when I went south, when I went south um, and I looked at... I think it's Greenville, Mississippi. I was right around Lakeview, Arkansas. I go through this city that if you're from Eastern Kentucky and where I'm from, I would equate to something around a pikeful. Um, it had less in some regards. It was larger in other regards. Uh, but, you know, it... it was reminiscent of that, except most of the businesses seem to have been locally owned um, and out of business. A lot of, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but a couple of larger name businesses were out of business. Um, I took a turn, went down a certain street, and there was for all intents and purposes, an old mine camp like you may find in Jenkins or any other part of, of eastern Kentucky. Similar looking homes, uh, definitely older homes, run down, damaged, um, infrastructure not taken care of at all, roads, pothole, the worst I've ever seen. Um, I saw two businesses. One in particular was a, like a grocery store, corner store, and the other was a restaurant. Uh, being run out of two houses that were dilapidated to the point that I really could see them being shut down and, and you know, uh, declared a threat to safety. And I looked at this, and for the first time <clears throat> I had seen in the South in a completely different landscape, flat fields, uh, cotton fields everywhere, um, I, I saw the same type of lifestyle and poverty I'd seen in many places in eastern Kentucky in a completely different landscape, uh, being experienced by a completely different set of people. They're not different in regards to anything other than perceived differences, differences in color, uh, differences in probably political beliefs. I thought at first, I, again, that's for another podcast, but there wasn't a whole lot of difference in political belief, actually. Um, difference in um, location. For all intents and purposes, it was the same thing, just perceived differences that kind of make you separate the two. I saw the same thing in Louisiana, Arkansas, and reflecting on it and thinking, I saw this everywhere I'd ever been. It was not a unique experience. It's not an experience that was new to me. It was an experience that had never taken the time to really sit down and look at the intricacies of and look at um, 
I guess you'd say uh, the connectiveness of of that experience and and what poverty meant nationwide. And I experienced and was able to really sit down and examine and look at poverty outside of Eastern Kentucky and have seen it through both lenses and and in both environments. And uh, that local feeling of hopelessness kind of went away. And I looked at it and said, this is part of the human struggle. Not necessarily that it has to be, definitely not that it should be, and not that there's not a way to prevent it, but it's not unique to my region. It's not unique to the people I grew up with. It's not unique to people in the mountains. It's not unique to people in rural areas. It's very present and very evident in cities and, and in places where the demographic is, is very different than it is at home. Now, I look at that, and of course I know that. I know that on the surface. You know, my my knowledge base was enough for me to know, well, there's poverty in cities, but it's seeing it and experiencing it firsthand to a certain degree, and not to say that I had to live as hard or, or deal with the circumstances that they did, but to experience it and see it firsthand puts a different value on it. And it's in that moment that they they don't become exclusive things, mutually exclusive things. They they become more intertwined, and, and it becomes more clear that you're looking at the same thing you're looking at in the hills of eastern Kentucky. If you take away a political lens, a racial lens, whatever it may be, you're looking at the same thing just in a different place. doesn't make you feel any better. Not by any stretch of the imagination. But it makes you appreciate one if you've been, had the benefit and the ability and the means to not have to exist at that level of poverty. And, and it, it gives you great uh, appreciation for anything you may have. You know, not to say that you're that much further removed from the situation those people are in, and it's not an, an it's not a desire to be better than or to make sure you're removed, but it's an appreciation for how they exist in regards to how the people in your hometown exist, how those people are growing up in regards to how you grew up, and the similarities between the two. It's a very impactful thing. And it's it's something that it's hard to discuss if you try to look at it from preconceived notions. Yes, of course I know that there's poverty everywhere. Yes, I knew this existed. Yes, I knew what this was. But in what way have you ever looked at it firsthand, been there to see it, and taken the time to go, these are not two different things. They're the same thing. They're just two different regions, two different populations. Sometimes it's different race. Sometimes it's the same race. Sometimes it's a mix of both. 
mix of sexes, a mix of ages, a mix of different family dynamics and and, and setups and and makeups and uh, but it's the same. And there's no comfort in the existence of poverty, not if you've came from it or not. But there's some comfort in knowing that we have a lot more in common at most levels than we take the time to observe or admit. And I'm sure that that's the same for middle classes in different areas and upper classes in different areas. I'm sure that's the same between middle class and lower class and lower income. I hate the word lower class. It's it's a ridiculous word. I mean, I'm definitely not middle class for on almost any of the parameters for middle class, but um, I still even if I were, I would not like that. It's a lower income uh, more than a lower class. Another thing is why a lot of people don't use lower class, um, but getting to see that was kind of eye-opening, and, and it made me want to look at things on more of a national level. And I'll take a break, and, and we'll do that. In regards to statistical information, it seems to be, for the most part, on a national level, it's there are so many variables that it's hard to um, it's it's hard to kind of settle on a list of certain things. I, I'm say list of the poorest cities, and you got to look at population. Uh, and if you're looking at things per capita or look at the uh, area in certain um, situations, L look at the state overall, look at the county, uh, look at access, look at roads in and out, uh, shipping lanes, things of, of that nature. Look at taxes, uh, state taxes, how businesses are taxed, how individuals are taxed. Um, look at programs that are provided and things. So it's it's hard to determine uh, and get an exact um you know what you what you have um i i found something top 10 poor cities in america for 2021 and number 1 on that list really didn't surprise me i'd seen other lists that had different answers and that kind of surprised me but i'm going to start at number 10 uh number 10 Toledo Ohio uh I don't have a lot of experience with Toledo. I've not really uh, adventured around, looked around anything there, um, but not something I think most people consider a huge city. Number nine, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. We've um, been through, but again, not kind of poked around and looked and things of like that. Uh, Jackson, Mississippi is number eight. I went through Jackson, Mississippi, and it checks a lot of things off on the box for possible progress that Eastern Kentucky doesn't check off. There are the possibility for shipping in and out, uh, interstates close, things of that nature. Um, its location is not terrible, uh, you know, not hard to get to, things of that nature. But I, I've seen firsthand a lot of the examples of the impoverished communities and things of, of that nature in in Jackson, um, Newark, New Jersey. Um, one that kind of surprised me, 
being on the top ten, but they're looking at uh, in a lot of these, and this one in particularly, uh, the salary um, as a, a baseline, and then the population and things of that nature. So those salaries in Newark, New Jersey, that will allow them to be on this poor cities in America list is much higher than many other cities. But cost of living, population, things that have a very big impact on on uh, the the value of the dollar in that area. You know, um, I don't think people realize the contiguous U.S. is about the size of the continent of Australia. Uh, you know, considering that it, you know, it's size what it is. Considering what Australia, you know, a lot of people look at Australia and go, wow, you know, that's huge. But compared to the U.S., the U.S. is so much bigger than so many other countries, France, England. Um, and, and in population, with the exception of, you know, China and a couple of other countries who, who far exceed our population, you know, I think the population for Australia as a whole, as a country, is roughly equivalent to the population of Los Angeles. I don't think it's California. I think it's just Los Angeles. In general, so we're a large area, and we're more like fifty individual countries into a uh, uh, in into one. You know, so there's there's going to be differences as far as that goes. Hartford, Connecticut, is number five on that list, and that, for all intents and purposes, blew my mind because I've never been to Hartford, but my my preconceived notions about Harvard or about uh, Hartford are, are based on a very <clears throat> white, upper class, uh, sometimes uh, family money, uh, you know, and, and investment money, you know, vacation and rich people. That That's kind of what I thought. So that one really kind of got me. And look, I looked at lists that a lot of these places weren't on. Rochester, New York pops up. And with that, you've got the same kind of deal you've got with Newark. Uh, Dayton, Ohio pops up there. Been to Dayton, and I have seen some of that firsthand. And, but still, even seeing some of that, you really have to get off the beaten path to see something to the point you'd go, well, yeah, they could be as poor as a mountain city, despite all of this mass of infrastructure and uh, salaries and jobs and all this that's at kind of the financial core of it. It's that outer layer as you stretch out from the core that really the poverty starts to hit, and I could kind of see that. Uh, Cleveland, Ohio, obviously been all, you know, not being there to experience that, uh, and got to really travel around and look around in that area. Uh, but based on some statistics and other readings I've done, uh, Cleveland pops up on a lot of those lists, as does Dayton. Number one on this particular list, and again, these lists are different. I may pop up a couple of the other lists and talk about them, is Detroit, Michigan. Um, that that one didn't surprise me. I seen Detroit topping a lot of lists. Uh, it wasn't at the top of every list, but every list kind of looked at things differently. You look at it per capita, um, you know, uh, size, you know, whatever population, whatever it is, it, it's a different different variables that that they look at to get these lists. Um, but this is the poorest big city, I guess, in America uh, according to ACS data. Um, Detroit was destroyed, you know, between NAFTA and, and you know, uh, the union issues that they had and a lot of different variables. At one point in time, Detroit was the fastest growing city 
in America, and I believe maybe the third or fourth most populated city. It's nowhere near that now. Uh, and I'd have to go back and double check that. I don't have the ability to check that right now. Um, but that, if I recall that correctly, you, you may want to check that yourself. But Detroit is very impoverished. And I've watched quite a few documentaries about Detroit, one about the fire department stuff up there. Look, um, it's amazing the fall that Detroit's had. Uh, it, it's really kind of uh, sad to look at. Um, I, I looked at another um, kind of a, a county parish ranking, um, and, and this is very heavy on, on per capita personal income and, and things of that nature. Um, Per capita income of the United States in 2019 was estimated at $34,103. In in this table, though, the per capita personal income was estimated at $56,469. I don't know where that comes from, the variance is there, but that's just kind of what they've done. And this is basically the 10 poorest counties in the United States of America. Number 10, Forest County in Pennsylvania. I think the average income is around 24000 uh, but there were some other factors out that put it in. Uh, Hudson County in Texas was number nine. Stewart County in Georgia was number eight. Elliott County in Kentucky was number seven. I want to say maybe their income was around 22000 somewhere in that uh, uh, ballpark. Uh, Union County in Florida is number six. Telefair County in Georgia is number five. Uh, Crowley County uh, in Colorado, very surprising to me. Uh, was number four. Um, number three was Buffalo County in South Dakota. Uh, Zabak or Zabak County in South Dakota was number two. And number one was Wheeler County in Georgia. And I want to say their income, I can't remember if that was per capita, was right around 19500 somewhere in there. Uh, you, you know, I wasn't able to break these down and had the time to go by and get kind of a breakdown because a lot of people make this solely a racial thing. And, and I think people who come from predominantly African-American communities look at them as being the poorest and people who come from predominantly uh, Caucasian-American or white American communities look at them as being the poorest. And it seems to be that it's more a matter of um, we have a group of people of varying race and, and in certain areas and regions and based on population, it's gonna be higher in certain places lower. The point is it's a shared experience and it's separate of race. Uh, you know, it's not something that's really completely dependent upon that. Um, I think this was 2019, the US Census Bureau the national poverty rate was 10.5% or 34 million Americans in 2019 that lived in poverty. Um, the states and territories that have the highest percentages of poverty in the country are Puerto Rico, Mississippi, Louisiana, Kentucky, Arkansas, West Virginia, Alabama, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and South Carolina. And you look at those places and that's where I have had the most experience, seen probably the worst poverty I'd seen in Kentucky and Mississippi. 
I've never been to Puerto Rico. Seen a lot in Louisiana and Arkansas and West Virginia. Uh, glimpses in Alabama, especially when I was young and went down there once. Never been to Oklahoma, Tennessee. I've seen that poverty in, not to the extent I have in these other places, but I've not been in the areas that I've been in in these other places. Um, it, it's... It's a scary thing, you know, and sometimes we don't realize how fortunate we are. Um, but I recognize that there's there's a lot of impoverished people who recognize how lucky they are for the few things that they have. And I've always tried to be very thankful of what I've had, no matter how little or how much. And I noticed in Kentucky, and I can only speak for Kentucky because Kentucky's where I'm from, that it's the people that may not have the least, sometimes they do have the least, but definitely don't have the most, that make the most impact and do the most things and involve themselves in the most activities that benefit others other than themselves. And it's uh that's a beautiful thing it's not a beautiful thing to look at those who have the most but do the minimum or do what they can get recognition for you know i liken it to there's a lady i follow on uh instagram uh i don't remember how i come across it and i don't do excellent names sometimes um Maybe Misty Marie or Miss Marie, I can't remember. But every time she's on Facebook, I mean on Instagram, there's something she's doing to help someone else. Always. There's some type of drive or something. I don't know what her means are financially. No clue. It's not right for me to, to speculate. I don't believe that she is at the level of, say, um, I'll try to be fair and, and think of somebody. Um, she's not at the level of LeBron James. LeBron James likes to say a lot of things and do a lot of things. And then LeBron James does a lot of things as far as charities and things of that nature. Don't, don't by any means, I'm not saying that. Um, I would argue that what she does at the level of means she has in comparison to his, because at this point, I don't know if there's a richer athlete, I don't know outside of maybe Floyd Mayweather. But there's no comparison from her input to her output and his input to his output. His input is exponentially greater than his output. And just from what I've seen from this lady, and many others like her, their output is exponentially more than what I would assume their input is. So, you, you know, in, in a lot of mountain counties I see are now getting programs and, and, and directors and, and people in these different projects who are, are trying to do this. And, and we're closer with our leaders and, and, and closer with your county judges and things of that nature. And the ones that aren't going to jail, uh, some of those are doing a really good job. Some of the ones that have gone to jail may have done a decent job. They just <laughs> did it in an illegal fashion. I don't know. It's not different conversation, different day. But 
I can only speak and attest to what I see. And what I see in this community, uh, the community I live in, is a lot of people making an impact and making a difference and trying to work hard. And it always looks like an uphill battle, especially for me on the outside looking in. I don't do near as much as I could or probably should do. And that's something I've been reflecting on and thinking a lot of, and that's a lot of what caused this whole deal. But I've got friends. I've got a friend named Peggy. And I've never seen a time where it went more than a couple of days or something like that, that she wasn't trying to find something to help someone else. She comes from the same environment I come from. She's not rich. I'm not rich. You know? But her first concern is always seems to be either her family or trying to help someone else. And I see that from a lot of mountain people. And I have to believe, based on all the other similarities I've seen throughout the country, that those same people, those same desires, exist in all these places. There's a great divide in this country right now. I think media, who go back and listen to the archives, not big on the media. I think media has turned that into a racial and political and uh, even even a geographical divide. I think the great divide is people who really have a lot. And they're separated from the people that have little and the people that have nothing. It's not to say that I in any way, shape, or form think we should take from those people who have a lot and just give it to those who have nothing. Because some of those people work really hard, hard to have what they've got. But there's a division. There's a separation. And in a lot of cases, there is less opportunity for those who have a little and those who have a lot. Because those who have a lot have a lot of opportunity, and those who have little have little opportunity. And there's the fair and just argument that a lot of those people that have a lot got there with little opportunity a lot of hard work. And that's true. Nothing will ever compensate for that. No matter how much you have, even to hang on to it or take hard work from somebody, either someone on your behalf or you yourself. But it would be nice if the ability to have a little more, not even a lot, a little more, that opportunity was made easier to reach. And if all of those people who make up the majority acted in unison from the way they acted in their local communities to the way they interacted with other communities, from the way they acted politically to the way they act socially, if that bridge was gapped, or if that gap was bridged, I think that would make more sense to say it that way, then the possibilities would be absolutely endless. So when they say we're a divided nation, we very much are. We're divided from the haves and the have-nots. And saying that doesn't have to make you communist. I'm not. doesn't have to make you a leftist socialist. I'm not. I believe in the tenements of socialism that are beneficial to maintaining democracy and freedom. 
and there are a lot. I do not believe in the overreaching aspects of socialism. To say that does not mean that I want to take everything from the rich and I want the rich to completely support the poor. Doesn't mean that at all. Do I want things that were gained by ill-gotten gain and, Ill and, and bad means to be taken? Sure. Do I want those who profit extensively from destructive practices to be taxed far more severely? Of course I do. Do I want personal taxation and personal responsibility from individuals who have profited from companies' means and situations that they have caused? Yes, I do. Do I want free money to everybody? No. But the right to have a roof, and the right to eat, and the right to not have to worry about clean water and education, those are very important tenements. And, and, and those things, education, a full stomach, good night's sleep, and clean water, those are the minimum. And from that minimum, greatness can rise. Without that minimum, greatness can still rise. The potential for human beings is exponential. We'll never end. We'll never get to a point where we can't be completely and totally amazing. But if we provide that bare minimum, and the infrastructure and the programs are in place to do so, you would have to look more at uh, the abuse of those things. But it doesn't go outside of that infrastructure in these places. Infrastructure in these places are very important. And we look at, well, infrastructure is easier to provide in a rich community because of taxes. Okay, I can understand that. But that's not to say there's not a workaround. For years in the state of Kentucky, my final thought, coal severance tax money from some of the hardest working hardest hit and poorest communities in the state of Kentucky provided tax money for infrastructure and various projects throughout the state of Kentucky and almost none of that money went to the infrastructure of eastern Kentucky. It's not to say the money didn't come. It was swindled away, it was stolen, it was lost, but all that money come off the sweat of their brow the breaking of their backs, and most of that money left this area. So it should be easy to say that we have the best infrastructure in all of Kentucky, but we do not. Same would be said for West Virginia, Virginia, all those communities that produce so much. They got so little. I wrote a poem in my first book, and uh, it was in some regards, very much about that. And there was a line in it, you know, uh, and, and I'm kind of um, paraphrasing to make it match, but you can't feed a family on black lung and heartache. There's a great division because of what's taken and what's given. The actual division is overshadowed by a perceived division, a division of color, a division of 
geography, a division of race, religion, sex, creed, and political affiliation. That division is false. Not that there's not differences and variances. They're not as impactful as a division of poverty and riches. Um, this topic probably not as even any lighter than the other, but um, what are we allowed to discuss? Are we allowed to discuss race and poverty and those things? Is 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 that an acceptable discussion? Because it it, it seems that socially, especially on social media and things of that nature, we're limiting what we're allowed to discuss. We're allowing it as long as it is representative of one viewpoint. You know, I just did a a podcast on free speech, and I did it before this episode for a very good reason. Go back and listen to that before you listen to the, the second part of this episode, because It's it's a different thing. Freedom of speech in that regard, I looked at what we're actually able to say uh, and, and what should be protected and not be protected. But this kind of looks at what is allowed on privately owned networks and, and companies and, and social media platforms and what's accept, acceptable to say uh, socially. For example, I believe wholeheartedly that if um, a man decides as an adult man that he wants to live as a woman, that's fine. I, you know, I, I, um, Caitlyn Jenner wants to be referred to as her and referred to as Caitlyn Jenner. That's fine. Now, Bruce Jenner, not the dead name because I'm speaking in past tense, Bruce Jenner was an Olympic athlete, very accomplished Olympic athlete. Now, if Bruce Jenner in the 70s had decided to become Caitlyn Jenner and then wanted to compete in female athletics, I would have completely and totally disagreed with that. I do today, especially in the fighting industry. Uh, formerly male or, or those born as males physically and uh, sexually competing after a change as females. It's not a matter of superiority. It's not a matter of hate. It's a matter of science, biology, and provable fact. We're built differently. We are different creatures. The way fat and muscle responds from male to female based on estrogen and testosterone, based on 30 years, someone at 32 years old decides I want to be a female and compete as a female, has had estrogen, I mean has had testosterone and, and male components of growth for 32 years. For me to say that I don't accept that is something I'm not supposed to talk about. I'm not going to get into that because that in itself is a completely different episode. But to want to talk about that is not acceptable. 
can't say that. And that's a fairly well um, universal belief that it's not acceptable based on social media, uh, the news, entertainment, Hollywood, any of those things that have a large voice would not allow me to say that. Not that a majority of people, including certain people in the trans community, that would agree with it. The point is, it has been deemed as something you can't discuss. It's been taken off the table. The debate's not been settled. Uh, no new evidence to contradict the factual scientific evidence has been introduced, but it's off the table. It's unacceptable, it's hurtful, it's off the table. You can't say it. This may hurt someone's feelings. They say that it may impact how a young boy, a young child, who is struggling with transition, hears it and goes, well, I will never truly be a woman. Well, you can be a woman in the sense of the definition of socially uh, and appearance-wise and personally how you identify. Scientifically and biologically, you can never be. And that's a mean, hurtful thing to say that you're not allowed to say. But I don't understand that. Not because I have any issue whatsoever with that community. And it used to be very much the other way. It was totally unacceptable to say that you agreed with and supported the transition of someone from male to female, female to male, if you had said that at a certain time in America on news or a TV show or there wasn't social media, but if there had been social media or the radio, that's completely and totally unacceptable. You could not talk about it. You couldn't address that. It's unacceptable. All we have done is switched one wrong for the other instead of making it possible to completely and totally discuss it. We limit things. We limit them greatly. In in the case of of Black Lives Matter and and shootings and, and things of this nature, in certain social circles, it is not acceptable to even consider the fact that the cop could be wrong. In Every other circle in social media, in the news, in uh, entertainment, if you have anything to do with Hollywood, in radio, podcasting, anything, it is detrimental to your existence to even give the illusion that possibly the person who got shot was actually in the wrong. A lot of times as people just trying to speak ignorantly. See, I can speak ignorantly about that. I can say this new video that's out, a cop shot a person who had a knife and was trying to stab another person. That is uh, the context I was given by the media that I've seen, which is very limited. That is what I saw based on steals from a body camera. I've not seen the full video. But to me, I can see in no way where that cop neutralizing an attacker is a negative thing, regardless of the color of the cop, which I do not know, or the color of the victim. 
Actually, the victim was the person that was going to get stabbed. That person should be celebrating the fact that the officer saved that person. That's kind of the idea. You stop murderers and things of that nature. Now, cops can vary and be bad. It, it happens. And some people would say, and some statistics would say, definitely in some areas, they are vastly, vastly unfair to African Americans. Now, if you look at other areas where population density and things are different, you would have to say that vastly they're unfair to Caucasian Americans. Overall, you would have to say that they are vastly unfair to people of lesser incomes and lesser means. But if you look at law enforcement as a whole, and what statistical data we have, you have to say that vastly, they do much more good than bad. But even to say that, it's a very questionable thing. It's hard. People don't like to hear that. It automatically means they're going to perceive that I'm white, which I am. They're going to perceive that I'm racist, which I'm not. And they're going to perceive that I do not agree with certain tenements of what they agree with. And that's not true either. There are cases where I don't understand the use of force. Some of them local. And I, 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 not things I want to get into and talk about. Some of those things nationally. Not things that I want to get in and talk to. Talk about. You know why? Because it's really not acceptable. And that's kind of sad. If you were working a mathematical equation, and you were trying to determine something that could save the fate of the world, and you had two different schools of thought, two different approaches to this problem, you had one side that said, throw out this part of the equation. It doesn't impact the, 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 the totality of the answer. And you had this other side that says, no, keep that in and throw this out because it doesn't affect the totality of the equation, but the other does. Then you had a group in the center who said, we need it all to factor out the actual answer. Well, if one group was given the ability and the platform to completely disregard the other, disregard the middle, who technically is correct, disregard the other side who's just as incorrect as they are, and promote only their side, then you kind of get our, certain, our current situation in the United States of America. It's not a new situation. It's just changed. It went from the Red Scare in the beginning of the Cold War into cancel culture and social media. It's the only difference. And there's only really one way to cure it. Take off the table the ability for anything to not be able to be discussed. There's been instances in the past where bishops and cardinals and popes have discussed with other religious leaders who had different religious beliefs the tenements of each belief without it being taboo for one or the other to exist, without dismissing and disrespecting the other opinion 
and without disregarding factual and statistical information, there's not a lot in regards, in regards to faith. There's not supposed to be. Just to allow their viewpoint to be heard. It's a weird thing. The desire to silence other people. It's weird for me because I've never had it. I don't have a desire to silence people who say, someone from Eastern Kentucky can't be intelligent, successful, smart, whatever. Well, I may fit some of the things that they say I can't be. And to them, that may be justification that they're correct. But I may exceed their expectations in other areas. It's not going to change their mind. But it doesn't matter because I'm me. I I don't want to silence someone that says every cop is bad. I don't. Put the information out there. Put the facts out there. I don't want to silence someone that says every cop is good. Put the information out there. Put your opinion out there because it's your opinion. And I do believe that if you have the freedom of press, you have the freedom of speech, you have should have the freedom of opinion and expression. If your opinion and the expression of it hurts someone else, it may be wrong of you to do, but it's just as wrong of them to try to silence it. For God's sake, people... How do you know who the bad guys are if everyone always has to say the right thing? If everyone's always virtue signaling and everyone's always canceling anything that doesn't fit that day's agenda. So what if you're successful? What if we defund the police? What if, if, if you're on the other side of that, what if we double down and militarize the police? What if we shut up every opposing opinion? Then you get control. And really, at the end of the day, whatever side gets control, that's their desires to have control. Is that good? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Is that good? Is it good to have one point of view, one way of seeing it, one, one side of expression? Is it good to take away any ability for debate, for discussion? How many people throughout time were wrong? And it was questioning them being wrong that made our advancement. When Einstein got to his greatest level of recognition for whatever that level was, many people who criticized or questions, let me rephrase that. Many people who questioned Einstein were criticized. Even though with the process of time, we can see that in many regards, questioning that was the right thing to do because Einstein was wrong in some regards. Some aspects of his research, and his knowledge, and his calculations, and his belief, he was wrong. And some of them willingly wrong that they challenged his personal belief so he ignored the data. That's the hard part. 
the hard part is putting your personal beliefs aside and not ignoring the data. That doesn't mean diminish your personal beliefs. It doesn't mean reject your personal beliefs. It doesn't mean give them any less value in your life. It means acknowledge the data and the possibility that your beliefs are wrong. You can still hold them as your beliefs. But they're just that. They're yours. And your belief should not be the weapon to silence someone else's. It won't work. It didn't work for Mao. When Mao tried to silence China, China was not prosperous. It didn't work. Personally, it may have been fine for Mao. I don't know. You know what kind of life he lived? Don't know what kind of joy he got out of life. But I know his history and where he came from, and it's ironic that he ended up the way he did. It's ironic in how he spoke of the virtues of freedom and freedom of choice and instituted a regime with no freedom and freedom of choice, no freedom of expression. But it didn't work out for him. It's never worked out for anyone. It didn't work out for Hitler. Because in the end, History will write you for what you are. Now, people say history is only written by the winners. That's true. And he who controls the present controls the past. And he who controls the past controls the future. Very true statements. But there's this thing about humanity. There's this thing about life in general. It goes on. And initially... You may have control and you may be getting your way. And if your way or your belief structure or your belief system has room for questioning, room for other opinions and room for other views, then your opinion and, and, and your point of view isn't threatening to others. So very few rise up against it. But if it is threatening to others, like the belief by most white Americans at a certain point in history, that white Americans were more important, more valuable, and just technically better than African Americans was detrimental to African Americans. It wasn't a factual statement. It wasn't an accurate statement. It wasn't the right thing to do. But there was no opportunity to question that. There was no platform to stand on. There was no ability to oppose that. It led to very dark times for African Americans who ended up being slaves and, and Jim Crow laws and, and, and the civil rights movement and all these things they had to go through. But in the end, cannot silence opposition. You can shove it underground. You can beat it down. You can make it angry. But a lot of times those things make it grow. They make them stronger. But also a lot of times when there's a shift from totalitarianism to a new form of totalitarianism, oh, yeah, you get the word. You get the same thing, just from a different perspective. That's the beautiful thing about modern America. I kept hearing this phrase for years, years and years and years. Last, I don't know, let's say four. Make America great again. At what point was America the greatest? Do you think it maybe was pre-formation of America? They wiped out all the actual Native American people. 
do you think it was during slave eras where a good portion of our current population based on race, their ancestors were treated as subhuman? Do you think it was during the Civil War when the country fought itself? Do you think it was during the Red Scare when we literally became communist to fight communist or became fascist to fight communist? I don't I don't understand the whole ideology there, but was that the greatest point in American history? I mean, was the greatest point in American history for white middle class Americans uh in suburban areas in the fifties? Highly possible. There wasn't a whole lot of other things in the 50s. Was the greatest part of American history the Depression? Oh, 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 or was it all the endless wars we're in now? How about we just continually on a regular basis try to make America better as we go? I mean, currently, for all our woes and all the situations that are negative, if you want to look at it technically, we live in the best time in history to be alive. There's a lot of doomsdayers and a lot of naysayers and a lot of people want to talk about how bad the world is. But if you go back into the very early episodes of this podcast, I did, an, I think, maybe one or two-parter on that. Statistically, we're in the safest, most prosperous, best time to be alive as a person in regards to health, security, food, water, in poverty. That's not globally. That's not everybody. Nothing fully encompasses everybody. The point is, if we want to make things great, truly make things great, I should be able to get on here and go, I think Trump was a joke. I should also be able to get on here and say what I equally believe. Biden is incapable of being a president and Harris has shown that she is the same dirty, part of the same dirty system that some good cops work in, except she was on the bad side of that. And that should be okay. should be acceptable. Right now, that's not. In certain social circles, for me to say that I think Pence is a vile human being is looked down upon. They're not going to talk to me. They're not going to like me. I feel that way. Truly, deeply do. On the same regard, I truly feel that what Biden is doing in Syria and what I feel they've done in the past with laws and regulations and restrictions, especially on African Americans, they're the last people African Americans should have voted for. And I can't say that on social media. I can, but I have to very, very carefully phrase it. Because it would be picked apart. Now, I could get on and make any claim about anyone else. I wanted to as long as they were from a certain side, and it's not going to be picked apart. But in certain social circles, it would be picked apart, even if it was factual. It's not a matter of which side you're on politically. And it's not a matter of if you're the person who agrees with what social media says or the person who disagrees with what social media says. It's a matter of would you allow an opinion contradictory to your own to be expressed? 
And that leads to what is untalkable. That's a ridiculous word I just made up. Because I don't write these out. I kinda, you know, with the exception of a little bit of research I do, I do these off the top of my head. And sometimes you're just going to have to accept the fact that I come up with stupid words and I phrase things wrong. But untalkable. What are the things that are not appropriate to be discussed? And why do they exist? I would venture to say that nothing. Nothing is above discussion. Things are above action. Things shouldn't be believed. But I cannot stop you from believing it. And I definitely should not be able to stop you from discussing it. I believe that social media platforms have the right to reject whatever discussion and whatever questions and whatever statements or beliefs they want to. As long as they don't do it under the guise of it being a lack of factual evidence, or as long as they don't do it, as long as they come out and just say, we don't agree with this, so we're not putting it on here, that's okay. You're a business. You have the right to do that. That falls back to that difference between the freedom of speech and how a company makes money. But in regards to what shouldn't be said and what shouldn't be talked about, I don't understand. I don't see anything that fits that category. I'm open-minded. I'm willing to hear it. But if nothing more than history alone has showed us anything, it's when we question. It's when we question what's commonly perceived that we make the most progress. Even if what's commonly perceived is correct, the act of questioning it will only verify its absoluteness. If it's incorrect, the action of questioning it will allow the possibility for corrections to be made. Nothing's off the table. Nothing can't be discussed. There's going to be times on this show that I discuss things but you're not going to lie. You're going to say things that you're not going to want to hear. I hear those things all the time. There's a reason why I don't watch Fox News, and there's a reason why I don't watch MSNBC. There's a reason why I don't watch news in general. I don't want someone to feed me an ideology that's based on just pure, the pure prospect of winning I want to know what you really believe, what you really feel. And if it's completely and totally absurd, if you're the Rachel Maddow or you're the name any Fox correspondent, and those are your real beliefs, I can't help you. Nobody can. You live in an ignorant just completely shut down version of the world. You don't have the ability to see anything outside of the box you were placed in. I want to be able to see outside that box. There was this question posed, and it's a psychological deal, and I can't remember the, the paper I was reading, and, and I read this paper, and this paper led me to this um, this this book, and I can't remember, so you have to look this up if you want to. There was this basically experiment, or, or more of a thought experiment, 
Okay, you take two people. You give them a box. You tell these two people, go find a beetle, put the beetle in the box, don't open the box and show it to anybody else. But you have to understand, these two people don't know what a beetle is. You can describe it to them. That's inconsequential. But let's say we tell them it's an insect. It's got wings and whatever. You give them this brief explanation. They both go and catch a beetle, put it in a box, and come back. They can never show the other person their beetle. And they can never look at the other person's beetle. And they sit and explain their beetle to each other. And, and they sit and form an opinion that this is, let's say you verify for them. You look in the box, and yes, that's certainly a beetle. And you look in the other box, and yes, that's certainly a beetle. You verify for them. You know. You're the one sent them on this task. You know what a beetle is, and you verified to them these are beetles. More than likely, they both capture completely different things. Having never seen a beetle, there's no point of reference, no way for them to know this is a beetle or this is not a beetle. They could go on the description that you gave, and if it was a vaguely descriptive thing, there's a lot of margin for error there. Taking two completely different people who see the world two completely different ways, who interpret information completely different ways. And here each of them sit, beetle in box. The question is, does my beetle look like your beetle? Does your beetle look like my beetle? What's the true definition of what the beetle is? Now let's take this experiment further than they took it. Let's take this thought process further and they took it. You open both boxes. After years, each have had a family, went back to their communities, told them, hey, look, this is a beetle. This, you bring them back, they open their boxes, and they finally show each other each, what they have. One's got a fly, one's got a ladybug. But they both believe they have beetles. And you've got somebody else there with scientific proof of what a beetle is. These people have two choices. Concede to provable, verifiable fact. Or staunchly defend a belief. A belief created on false information. A belief created on inaccurate perception. A belief created totally and completely to indoctrinate them into a certain belief. Something that they've lived with their whole lives, a belief that they hold to be a core truth. They've got two options. Concede they indeed don't have a beetle. And that not only is the other person wrong, but they are wrong. Or staunchly defend that belief. Blow your mind how many people are going to staunchly defend that belief. Because to them, that is a beetle. doesn't matter that they were ill-informed. doesn't matter that they were lied to. doesn't matter the context of the situation. It just means to them that is a beetle because that's what they believe. Or make it even more interesting, say one of them actually has a beetle and the other one does not. 
the majority of people would probably concede. I really believe that. There's a minority of people who would disagree with the scientific fact, disagree with all of human record, disagree with whoever discovered and named the beetle. I didn't look that up. That would probably have been interesting information. And still staunchly defend the fact that their fly is indeed a beetle and that everyone else is wrong. That minority of people, they have the loudest voice. They have to scream the loudest. Much fewer people are screaming in unison with them. Much fewer facts, if any, back up their belief structure. Those people have the loudest voice. And the second loudest voice is those people who believe something just as wrong but don't quite have the platform screen. The quietest voice in the room is almost always the truth. The way you amplify that voice and deaden the others, not kill them, not do away with them, but dampen their ability to scream to where it's an equal expression and not a controlled expression. The way you do that is you never limit what questions can be asked, what topics can be discussed. The freedom of English.